Welcome to Seacoast Church. My name is Ernest Smith. I'm the college and 20-somethings pastor here at the Long Point campus. I want to welcome all of you joining us from a, another campus, maybe here in the Charleston area, or maybe you're in a much colder spot like Irmo or Greenville or Asheville or some other campus. I want to thank you guys for joining us this weekend. I don't know about you, but I'm excited about the series that we're currently in, Hope Epidemic. I don't know if it's all the red t-shirts that I've seen around town that's gotten me excited, or if it's these water bottles that at one point looked like they had been packaged in a water uh, treat, a sewage treatment plant that's gotten me excited. Or maybe it's just a simple fact that we're talking about giving hope to people, about not only receiving hope in our own lives, but about being able to give that hope to others. I mean, can you imagine if we were able to do that this holiday season, to be able to give hope into the lives of other people, what could happen? And during this season, we talk about giving a lot. We talk about all the people that we have to give gifts to our family that we have to give, give gifts to, our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors, our dogs and cats. I mean, I can understand dogs, but cats, seriously? I mean, but the reality is that all the presents and all the gifts that we give this year, the reality is, is that those things are going to be obsolete within a few years, or they're going to be a lot like Gamecock fans. They're going to have some excitement for a very short time, and then over a few weeks, the excitement will fade and dwindle but not hope. You see, hope is everlasting. If we could be a part of giving hope to people, we'll be a part of giving away the fabric of life. Hope is what keeps people moving forward. Hope is what keeps people going forward to a certain destination. And you and I can be a part of that. Last week, Pastor Jeff and Pastor Sherry did an awesome job of explaining where hope is ultimately found how hope is found from a source in Jesus Christ. Having a personal relationship with Christ is where hope is ultimately found. But is that enough? I mean, is it enough to just receive Christ into our lives, give thanks to God, and then live comfortably the rest of our lives? Is it enough to receive Jesus Christ into our lives, receive the hope that he gives us, and then to continue to pursue the American dream while giving glory and honor to God? Is that enough? Is it enough for us to have Christ in our lives and live in our houses and drive our cars and have our nice clothes and eat good food and have clean water? Is it enough? Or are we neglecting something? Maybe we're neglecting the 100 million homeless people throughout the world, including the 1.5 million homeless children. Maybe we're neglecting the 10 million Kenyans that are facing starvation this year. Maybe we're neglecting the 5,500 people that will die today, 5,500 people today alone from a lack of clean drinking water. Maybe we'd be neglecting the most profound challenge that we find in the story of the woman at the well. You remember this woman. She's a Samaritan woman and she's coming to the well at noon because she's a social outcast and she expects to see no one there, but yet she encounters Jesus Christ and he gives her the hope that she's been looking for her entire life. He gives her the hope that's going to keep her going, the hope that only he can provide. But I don't believe that Jesus was there just to save her, just to give her hope. I believe he was there to teach a profound truth that affects our lives even today. And that's what we're going to pick up in the story. John chapter 4, verses 27 through 42. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn to it or it'll be on your notes as well. John chapter 4, verse 27 through 42. It says this, just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? 
They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, Jesus said, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for the harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their, their labor. Check this out. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and I pray God that you would speak to us right now. That God, you would speak to us through your word and you would show us exactly what you have for us today. That God, as we talk about hope and bringing hope into the lives of others, God, may you show us how you can use us to radically impact the lives of so many people throughout our community and our world. In Jesus' name, amen. So within the content of this story, what you've got is you've got a woman and she has received hope from Jesus Christ. All the hope that she's been looking for her entire life, she now has found. But not only do you have that, but you also can find two reactions from two different groups of people. And these two reactions are ones that we have in every situation of our life. We either fall into one of these reactions or another. The first is that of the disciples. The disciples, it says this in verse 27, just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. No one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? These guys were shocked. You see, they went away to go get Jesus some food. He was tired. He needed to rest. He needed some water. They were coming to bring him back from some food and they were expecting him to just be hanging out, chilling, relaxing. And when they got back, they realized that Jesus was sitting there talking, having a theological conversation with a Samaritan woman. To say that they were shocked is an understatement. I mean, this would be like going into Starbucks and seeing Pastor Greg having coffee with Osama bin Laden. We'd be shocked. And that's exactly the way these disciples reacted. They were shocked. The disciples' reaction shows this, that they didn't recognize God's work. They didn't recognize that God was indeed at work in this situation. You see, these guys have been taught their entire lives, certain mentalities. They've been taught their entire lives that the Israel nation was the dominant nation of the world, that the Israel nation was the nation that God had chosen to bless. They had been taught their entire lives to, to pursue the Jewish, the, the, the Jewish dream. And they've been taught their entire lives to not have any dealings with anybody else outside of the nation, outside of the race, outside of anybody that could help them pursue that ultimate dream. But then here's Jesus. He's sitting there with the woman of Samaria, a woman who's much different than these Jewish men. He's breaking all the social norms. And you can imagine the disgust that the disciples are feeling. You can imagine their, their disdain now. They're shocked that Jesus is having this conversation. But is their culture really any different than ours? I mean, growing up here in America, we're taught that America is a great dominant nation. We're taught that God has chosen to bless America. We're taught from a very young age to live, to pursue the American dream. 
And we're also taught, maybe not always verbally, but we're taught not to have any dealings with people who can't help us to achieve that dream. And I've heard these comments, uh, especially around missions times. I've heard these, these thoughts uh, through people's comments around when we're going to Africa to, to serve on missions. I've heard people literally say things like, why are you going to Africa? Those people are ignorant and they need more help than what you can actually give to them. Or why are you going to Africa? Why should I give money to Africans? They're just going to abuse that money anyways. Or why should I be praying for the Africans? They need a lot more than my prayer. Now, I don't know if any of us would admit to saying something like this, something this harsh. But the reality is, is that all of us could fall into this trap. All of us could fall right into this mindset that the disciples had and not being able to recognize where God is at work. I mean, the disciples may have asked, can God really move in this place? And sometimes we may ask, why isn't God moving in this place? Why isn't God moving in these people's lives? Why isn't God moving in this country? The disciples may have asked, does God really love the people of Samaria? Sometimes we ask, why doesn't God love the people of Togo or of Guatemala, Honduras, of Kenya or of Sri Lanka? I mean, if God really loved these people, then why did he allow a tsunami to hit them? If God really loved the people of Kenya, then why does he allow them to starve to death? Does God really love these people? And we can't see God's activity. The disciples may have asked, can a Samaritan truly understand who God is? And sometimes we may ask, can an uneducated, illiterate African really understand who God is? We may not verbalize these comments a lot, but I think sometimes we fall into these traps. Whether it's when we're asking God, where are you? Or God, why haven't you done something? Or can God really do this? Sometimes we fall into the trap of not being able to recognize God's activity. But then there's a second reaction. The reaction of the Samaritans. We read in in verse 42, it says, They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. You see, these Samaritans, they weren't irreligious people. They had a faith in God. They believed in him. They, they read the first five books of the Old Testament. They believed that one day the Messiah would come. They had a faith in God, but the reaction was still stunning. Why? Because they listened to a woman who was a social outcast. They listened to her testimony about who Jesus was. And it says some of them received Christ right there. Some of them believed in who Jesus was because of her testimony alone. The Samaritan's reaction shows that they recognized God's game plan. They recognized God's game plan. You see, not only did some of them automatically believe in who God was and who Jesus was and the hope that he had come to give to them. But many of them, they, they didn't believe right away, so they asked Jesus to come back to the town. And after listening to him for two more days, many of them believed and gave their lives over to God and found the hope that Christ was there to offer. And one of the most profound statements that they make in this passage is at the very end, and it says, we know that this man really is the savior of the world. They didn't say, we know that Jesus is the savior of Samaria or that Jesus is the savior of my own life, or that Jesus is the savior of maybe Samaria and Israel. But they said that Jesus is the savior of the world. These guys got a concept. They got the idea of what Christ came to do way before the disciples even grabbed a hold of it. 
We don't see the disciples understanding that Jesus came to save the world until Acts chapter 8, which was the first missionary journey outside of the, the nation of Israel. The first time that they went somewhere different. And where did they go? Samaria. But these Samaritans, they got it. They knew why Jesus was there. They knew that he didn't come to heal those who were healthy, but rather those who were sick. They knew that Jesus had not come to save that which was found, but rather that which was lost. And they knew that Jesus hadn't come just to save the religious, but the irreligious. They got it. They grabbed a hold of why Jesus was there. They knew that he was the hope of the world, that he was the savior of the world. And this statement tells us that they were willing to proclaim it. They were willing to tell the world about it. They immediately recognized God's game plan. So how do you and I become a part of what God's doing? How do you and I become a part of God's game plan? You see, when Jesus went to the well, not only did he go to, to save this Samaritan woman, not only did he go to bring her hope, but I believe that he wanted to use this experience as a teachable moment for his disciples. You know, he knew what they were thinking and he knew their thoughts. And, and so he, I can imagine him just kind of saying, guys, let's gather around. Let's have some guy time. I need to teach you some things. He wanted to give them a teachable moment. You've had these with your kids. Maybe you've been teaching them something their entire lives and they do something and you know that they haven't grabbed on to what you're trying to teach them. So you use that opportunity to, as a teachable moment in their life. Maybe you've been on the receiving end of a teachable moment. Maybe it's been with a coach or, or with a spouse or with a parent. A little over a year ago, I walked into our offices here at the church and I was wearing plaid shorts and a striped shirt. Now, I didn't think anything about it because I'm a guy and most of the guys in the office didn't think anything about it. I just walked on. Everybody said, hey, how you doing? That type of thing. But every woman looked at me like I had just done something crazy. Every woman began to go, Ernest, did you dress yourself this morning? Ernest, what are you wearing? And my wife has used that moment as a teachable moment in my life from that point on to teach me how I'm supposed to dress. And I believe that that's how Jesus was, do, what, what, what he was doing with these guys right here. He was saying, guys, gather around. Let me give you a little teachable moment. Let me tell you what I want you to know from this experience. And he gives them two things. Number one, I want you to rejoice in the success of God's work. Verse 36 says, even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. See, Jesus not only wants his followers to go out and to proclaim to the world that he is the hope of everyone, but every once in a while, he wants us to take a time out just to stop what we're doing, stop where we're at, stop all the work, all the ministry, and just take a time out for a moment to just celebrate what God is doing. The Greek word for that, that word to rejoice, to celebrate is to, to be full of joy. It means to be happy, to celebrate what God is doing. And that's what God wants us to do every once in a while is just to take a pause and to celebrate what he's doing. And our God is a big God and he's doing mighty things all around this, all around our communities and all around the world. And he wants us to take, take, take some time to celebrate that. I mean, here at Seacoast in 2009, God has done some amazing things. I mean, this year alone, we've, we started our first ever dental access day where we saw over 1,500 people here in the Charleston area come and get free medical help, free dental help. Over thousands, uh, thousands upon thousands of dollars were, were given for this day so that people could have free access to the, to the dental work that they needed. People were able to grab a hold of hope that day. Up in the Columbia and Irmo campuses, there's a group that goes out almost every single Wednesday night to one of the parks downtown. 
And they go and they feed the homeless. They give them clothes. And they just try to meet their needs in any way possible. They're building relationships. And they're giving those people hope for another day. Right here in the North Charleston area, we have our dream center. And through Adopt-A-Block and the Dream Closet and the Dream Pantry, we just got a report this week that the neighborhood, that the, the crime rate in the neighborhood surrounding the Dream Center has dropped by 25% in the last year. 25%. I mean, God wants us to take a moment and just celebrate things that he's doing, the work and the success that he's doing in our campuses, in our lives, in our community, and in the world. Globally, Secos has sent over two dozen missions trips all over the world. And we've seen over 6,000 people in free medical clinics. People were able to all over the world to get free medical help that they would not have been able to, to receive any other way because of a lack of funds or a lack of location. But God was able to bring them hope through these missions trips. Or like the Greenville campus sent a team to Guatemala to put in a water system to help those people be able to have clean water so that they can live another day and to discover the hope found in Jesus Christ. Or like the hundreds of Turkana people that our church fed this past summer. The hundreds who were facing starvation. And our church rose up and allowed God to use us to bring hope to those individuals. See, sometimes God just wants us to take a time out. To just to rejoice and to celebrate in the success of God's work. But the second thing that he was trying to teach his disciples was to join God in his work. It says this in verse 37, it says, Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. You see, Jesus, he not only wanted them to rejoice and wants us to rejoice, but he's saying, guys, we're not done yet. There's still more to do. There's still more people out there that need hope. There's still more people who are yearning for a change in their lives. There's still people out there who are yearning for salvation, who are yearning for the hope that only Jesus Christ can bring. And he's looking to us to bring that to people. He knows the woman that's in North Charleston that has three kids. And that all she's wishing for for Christmas is for her heat to be turned back on. He knows that African child whose thoughts cannot be filled with Christmas right now because He's only consumed with his mom who is dying of AIDS. And Jesus knows about that guy who's entering this holiday season alone for the first time without his loved one, who's yearning for hope. See, we're not done yet. And Jesus is telling his followers, and he's telling us today that there's still more to be done. There's still more work to be done in this world and in our communities. There's still more for us to do. And he's put that responsibility on us to go out there and to shed the hope of Jesus Christ to the world. But this is way easier to say than to actually do. I mean, because for us to actually go out and to give hope to other people is for us to have to sacrifice. We have to sacrifice money. And have you seen the economy lately? I mean, gas prices, me and Sarah, we're having our first child. I don't have money right now to give to other people. Being able to bring hope to people also means that we have to sacrifice time. <laughs> and I got to be honest, I don't have a lot of time right now. I mean, with all the Christmas parties and all the duties of my job and, you know, thinking about going out of town and just different things, I don't have a whole lot of time to sacrifice for others. And then it also costs us our energy, or our effort. And man, I got to be honest, I'm tired. 
I mean, the last few months I've been going, going, going. I'm just tired. And when I get home, I don't want to have to think about going out and doing more ministry or whatever. I just want to relax. I just want to rest. But the reality is Jesus faced these same challenges. I mean, the Bible tells us at the very beginning of this passage that Jesus went to the well because he was tired. And then he was coming to get to get refreshment. He was coming to, to kind of rejuvenate his body and his spirit. And yet he meets this woman and he sacrifices that time of refreshing so that he can minister to this woman. The Bible tells us at the end of this passage, Jesus was invited to Samaria for two days. And so he stayed with the people there for two days. I mean, who's busier than Jesus? Jesus came to save the world and he only had a very short time period to do it in. And yet he was willing to take two days out of his time, two days out of his busy schedule to go minister to people. Who's busier than Jesus? And then it took money. I mean, Jesus didn't just, just didn't get food for free. He had to pay for food. He had possibly had to pay for transportation. So those extra two days in Samaria cost them money that they probably weren't expecting. You see, Jesus isn't worried about the obstacles. He doesn't want to be focused. He doesn't want us to be focused on the obstacles, but rather on the needs of those around us, the needs of those in our community. The more we focus on the obstacles, the less we focus on people. The more we focus on people, the more we can see God bring hope into our generation and into our world. A little over three years ago, I went to Kenya on a missions trip with uh, an organization called Bread of Life. And Bread of Life's focus is to reach out to the unreached people groups of Kenya and the Sudan. And they're unreached people groups because the climate is usually hot and the terrain is rough. And we went to a tribe called the Turkana. And they are definitely an unreached people group. While we were there, the average temperature was between 110 and 115 degrees. And that was the winter time. And by that point, I'd heard all the stats. I'd heard about how many people had been, you know, were dying of, of starvation. I'd heard how many people, you know, in the world didn't have clean water. And I'd heard all the stats, the same stats that I rambled off earlier. But the reality with stats is they really just numb us a lot of times. Until we come face to face with a stat, we're usually just numb to what's actually happening. So one of the ministry days that while we were there, we were going to be giving out 76 pallets of food, one pallet per family. So we were going to give 76 families food to last another day, another week, another month, maybe a couple months. And I was so excited. I mean, I was so proud of our team. It was a bunch of high school students and a couple other leaders. And, and I was behind the camera, man. I was just taking pictures. And I was so happy to see what God was doing. I'm so excited. These, you know, little Mount Pleasant, you know, rich white kids, you know, hanging out with Africans, trying to help them out. And I was so excited. I'm taking these pictures. And then I came face to face with one of those stats. I saw a woman and her three kids. And as I looked through the lens of the camera, I realized that there was no food left. And looking at this family, all of their cups, they had, they had brought cups. They had walked miles and miles so that they could take their cups and dip it into a bag of rice so that maybe they could live another day. And their cups were empty. Their faces were distraught and they had no hope. And I had come to bring the hope of the world, Jesus Christ, to these people. And in that moment, I almost lost all hope. I got away from the team. I emotionally, I broke down. I got away from everybody. I went and hid in this little corner so I can have some shade. And I just wept. And I didn't say, God, where are you? Or God, why aren't you doing something? 
The question that I pose God is, God, what do you want me to do about it? What do you want me to do about the situation? About these people dying of starvation? And immediately God put it on my heart to, to do this initiative called Student Serving Africa. Well, we would come back here and we'd try to raise money for these people. For $15, somebody could buy a family of four a month's worth uh, supply of food. For $25, somebody can buy a goat. If we get two goats of different genders and they can multiply and we can have milk and, and meat for a family almost for a lifetime. I was so excited to get back. When we got back, I started telling churches and youth groups and, and schools. And I started telling people about it. And we started seeing people raising money for goats and for food. And, and it was awesome. And then this past summer, we had a student ministry retreat called Elevation. And we decided that we were going to challenge all the students to raise enough money to dig deep into their pockets that weekend, as deep as a middle school or high schooler can dig, and to give money to be able to buy at least 100 goats. And we put the challenge out there to them, and they did beyond what we could ever imagine. They raised over enough money for over, to be able to purchase over 130 goats. Man, I was so excited because we were going back to Turkana in July, just a few months ago, and, and, and we were going back, and I, we had a plan. We had the money. I was so excited to be able to buy 130 goats and to tell the, the, the chiefs and the, the elders of the village what all these 11 and 15 and 17-year-olds had done for them. But then something happened. The first day of organized ministry, we divided the team up. And our goal was to go out and to go into these huts and to tell people about Jesus Christ. And so on my team, it was me and one other American and then a couple of Kenyans. And as we walked, we walked miles and miles and miles in the desert. And after about seven or eight miles, we got to a hut. We went inside and we started telling this woman about Jesus and how he was there to bring her hope. And during about the middle of the conversation, a man walked in and this man, he looked pretty healthy. I mean, for, for people in, in that society, he was a healthy man. And so he walks in and we start telling him the story about Jesus Christ and the hope that Jesus has to offer. And at the end, we asked both of them, would you be willing to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And the woman said no, but the man said yes. And we were elated. We were so excited that this guy was going to receive Christ into his life. But he said, here's the deal. I want to pray in my own hut. And I was saying, all right, where's your hut? Is it like 10 feet away? Is it like 20 feet away? Because I'm tired, you know, all that. I was only thinking about me at that point. So he said, no, my hut's a little bit over there. So we walked about another two miles to get to his hut so we can pray for him in his own home to receive Jesus Christ. And as we got about 400 yards away, he stopped and he turned around and he started saying something. And he pointed and we weren't sure what he was pointing at. I mean, we looked over in the spot that he was pointing to and all we saw were some rocks and a couple bushes and a tree or two and just a bunch of sand. I mean, we were in the middle of the desert. What was this guy pointing to? As the translators told us his story, the guy began telling us that this pile of rocks that we saw over here to our right was the gravesite of his son. His infant son who had just died from a lack of food and a lack of water. We were there to bring hope. This guy had none. He had no hope for his family. He had no hope for his kids. He had no hope for the future. And I, we come to bring goats. I mean, we were excited. We are going to be bringing goats to these people. And as we sat down with the elders, they told us, we're not going to allow you to give us any more than 12. Because those 12 will probably die anyways because there is no food and there is no water. 
And so what we were coming to do to bring these goats that all these kids had raised money for, we had to put that money aside. They said, bring it next year. Maybe we'll have some water then. And our team vowed on that trip that not only were we going to come back here and share the experience, but man, we weren't going to be content with our lives anymore. We wanted to do everything we could to lead the charge to make sure that there was going to be a well built in this area. That we weren't going to be content anymore with sitting down. We weren't going to be content anymore with buying our Starbucks while 5,500 people die every single day from a lack of clean water. We were not going to be content. We were going to be a generation that was going to rise up and to make sure that we saw a well built in this area. So because where well is, there's water. And where there's water, there's food. And where there's food, there's life. And where there's life, there's hope. That's what these people were yearning for. That's what Jesus has come to bring. But it's our responsibility to take the hope of the world, Jesus Christ, to those who are in need. So how about you? What is God calling you to do today? For some of you, it may be responding to the hope found in Jesus Christ. It may be giving your life over to Jesus Christ for the very first time. Maybe you came into this place and you've lost all hope in your situation, in your marriage, in your relationships, at your work, for your future. Christ has come to give you hope. Maybe you need to meet him at the well to drink from the everlasting spring that he offers all of us. And for others of us, I believe that God's calling us to make a difference by giving hope to others. For some of you, that may be adopting a family. Here in the, the Charleston area, we had over 200 families that we wanted to, to have adopted. And all of those have been adopted, praise God. But that doesn't mean that that's all the needy families uh, are in Charleston, that there's only 200 and something in Charleston. And maybe God's calling you, wherever you are, whatever campus you may be at, to look around you and to see the needs of your neighbors or see the needs of some other people in your community and to adopt a family this Christmas to bring hope into their lives for some of you, and maybe going online to seekos.org and clicking on the Gifts of Hope link. And there you can actually buy gifts for people all around the world. You could buy a chicken. You could buy a goat. You could actually pay for someone's surgery. You can provide money for someone to have clean drinking water. Maybe God's calling you to every time you think about coffee or every time you go and get coffee, to put the same amount of money that you would have spent or that you did spend on that coffee right here in this bottle. Or every time that you spend money at Chick-fil-A buying a milkshake, that you put that same amount of money right here or a smoothie or whatever it is. And you put the money here and you bring it back on Christmas Eve and you give it, you put it at the altar and you say, God, use this to bring hope into the world. What is God calling you to do? Could you imagine what would happen if we as a church rose up and as one body, as one voice, we decided that this Christmas season, we were going to do everything that we could to bring hope to the lives of those who were in need. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what would happen if every family in this church adopted a family this Christmas season to bring hope into someone else's life? Can you imagine what would happen if every one of us in here were to take the money that we were to spend on eggnog or sodas or coffee and to put it in this bottle and bring it back at Christmas Eve. Can you imagine the hope that we would spread? Can you imagine if every person in this church said, God, use me this holiday season to give someone else hope? What could happen? I believe a hope epidemic. Let's pray.
Father God, we come before you. God, we thank you so much for the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. We thank you, God, for sending your son to die for us. We thank you, Jesus, for meeting us where we are. No matter how messed up we are, God, you meet us exactly where we are and you provide hope in our lives and in our situations. God, I pray that you would speak to us right now, Father, about what you want us to do to spread that hope to other people, to spread the hope that is only found in you to the lives of so many people throughout our community and in our world. God, use us this holiday season. May we start a hope epidemic. In Jesus' name, amen.